This review is sponsored by Stamps.com, which can save you so much time and money, it's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use them. Use my promo code MERL for a special offer that includes a four-week trial. Plus, stay tuned till the end of the review for more info. That's Stamps.com, promo code MERL. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my spoiler review of The Batman, which is wrapping up its first box office weekend today. Just a reminder, you can tune into the channel here tomorrow for Charts with Dan, where we're going to talk about everything box office related to The Batman, as well as a review of Pixar's Turning Red. We have a, a two for Monday coming up tomorrow. I did my non-spoiler review for the movie already, so if you haven't seen it or you want to get my takes without spoilers, then you can click the little card up there. That'll tell you what I thought of the movie, because this is going to be 100% a spoiler review. This is for people that hopefully have seen the movie. It'd be weird to watch a spoiler review without seeing the movie, uh, but you saw the movie. You wanted to get my thoughts on things that I couldn't really talk about in my other review because I want to keep that experience intact for everybody else. So this is your last blanket spoiler warning. We're going to do the spoiler review in three, two, one. So there's lots of things that I want to get into, and one thing that I couldn't talk about when I did my original review, because it was last Tuesday, or this previous Tuesday before the movie had come out, is the reaction to the film. And I've got to be honest, I'm not shocked that there is, I wouldn't say an overall mixed reaction. Generally, it seems like a lot of people have been positive, but there have been a lot of people that are saying like this wasn't the direction for the Batman that they thought it was going to take, or they didn't quite like the tone of the film. And after seeing the movie uh, Tuesday night, at the first initial fan screening, I, I was actually kind of anticipating that a little bit because this is a movie that takes more inspiration than ever before really from not just the Batman of the comic books, but the Batman from certain storylines in the comic books which are more detective-driven, which are a little more film noir-ish. Uh, that's just the look and the feel of the film that Matt Reeves and the team behind this movie were going for. So I wasn't really that surprised to see that some people were saying like, oh, this just doesn't feel like the Batman that I know because now more than ever people kind of take their cues and their expectations not from the original source material but from what a lot of people consider to be the source material which is previous movies and TV shows and particularly in the movie world we've never had a Batman movie quite like this one and I didn't think it was a perfect movie we'll get into some of my issues with the films later on but I wanted to address one group of criticisms or cluster which is that the movie was too dark too grim first of all and I said this in my non-spoiler review it is a Batman movie. I mean, there has to be a certain amount of that, you know, not since the 1960s, really, when it comes to a Batman movie and then a quick swerve into Batman and Robinville. Have we not expected a certain amount of grimness uh, and darkness that comes with this Batman uh, genre, this Batman franchise, I guess you could call it? First of all, I don't think that the movie is quite as grim and dark as some people have made it out to be. I mean, I've seen it described as humorless, and I don't think it's a humorless movie. I think that there were some really uh, funny, dark darkly funny, but funny sequences. Most of them relating around Batman and Gordon, not yet Commissioner Gordon, but I thought the sequence where they're doing the whole thumb drive thing, again, very darkly funny, but the idea that Gordon is just really not, uh, does not find anything humorous about this, and yet Batman has a certain dark, humorous fascination with it. Uh, and then that scene in the interrogation room where Batman's in police custody and they sort of stage this jailbreak, I think those were two really good relationship moments for these characters, and it shows how 
how and why they trust each other instead of kind of taking that relationship as a given, which we have to do in a lot of Batman movies. So I, I don't think the movie is humorless. I, I just didn't find it to be that way at all. But then kind of going on to talk about the tone of the movie and saying, like, it's so dark, it's so dark. Well, yes, it is very dark, especially at the beginning. We are at the beginning of Batman's career. We are with a Bruce Wayne who was in year two of this experiment, obviously still hurting from his parents' death, a complete recluse from society, which is kind of a different side of Bruce Wayne than we've seen in most Batman movies. There's a couple like Dark Knight Rises where Bruce Wayne has kind of been out of the spotlight after returning to Gotham. But this was the most damaged portrayal, I think, of Bruce Wayne that we've seen as far as externally his interaction or lack thereof with other people. But one of the things I like the most about this film is that by the end, we're taking a turn away from that direction and away from that tone because the whole last part of the film is about Batman realizing that being vengeance, which is really what Batman is in most movies, is not enough. To get that one layer above the criminal element, you have to be something more. And I like that. I like that message, and I honestly like that direction of where they're potentially taking the character because it's not one that we've seen in a lot of Batman theatrical films, especially before. The idea of a Batman who is uh, beloved by the citizens of Gotham, but feared still by the criminals of Gotham, and this moment of realization from Bruce Wayne where he kind of isn't looking as inside himself, which that is very much a, a quality of his character that we see so much and in, in pretty much every portrayal as this very deeply insular Bruce Wayne, but a Bruce Wayne that is looking outside of himself and saying, I need to be a symbol, which I think is going to manifest itself both as Batman and as Bruce Wayne, because I think we're going to see this philanthropist Bruce Wayne, the idea that I do need to play a role in Gotham City. Both Batman and Bruce Wayne need to be a beacon for Gotham City. And I loved that scene at the end where the, the choppers are overhead and they're showing Batman helping. They're showing Batman saving people uh, from this catastrophe that's happening, basically saying to Gotham, this is not someone that you should be afraid of. This is a symbol of hope. This is somebody who's going to help you. And I like that direction. And it's almost the most hopeful Batman movie in a weird way, as far as where they leave it at the end. It, it kind of takes him in the most positive direction as far as finding a way for him to repair the damage uh, that he's done to his own psyche and making himself a, a fuller person. That's one criticism that's kind of confused me because for everyone that's saying like, well, it's just another Batman movie, it's just so dark, I don't think that you're really taking into account what the message at the end of the movie was, which was kind of a repudiation. It's a repudiation of the exact same thing that the beginning part of the movie uh, has been saying. And, you know, I'll admit that I've been guilty sometimes of taking the beginning part of a film and not really paying attention to what the rest of the film is saying. And that's part of my own growth as a film lover, as a film critic, uh, to, to open myself up to that message and not close myself off to something that I don't really like in the beginning of the film. So that that's kind of a pushback. You know, everybody has their own opinion, and, and if this isn't the tone or the tempo of a Batman movie that you were expecting, I do understand that, because this is unlike just about every Batman movie that we've seen before. However, the one thing that I would push back on is that criticism that this is unrelentingly dark uh, and, and almost uh, a nihilistic film because uh, in so many ways I think that this is the least hopeless Batman film ever made. 
So let's get into some specific parts of the movie that I want to talk about. And let's start, we were just talking about the story. Let's start with the script. It was co-written by Matt Reeves. It was the first screenplay that he has co-written since War for the Planet of the Apes a few years ago. Uh, it was also co-written by Peter Craig. Craig co-wrote uh, Sandra Bullock's The Unforgivable, which just came out at the end of last year. Uh, he co-wrote Bad Boys for Life, The Town, the last two Hunger Games films. So kind of an up and down filmography. But generally, I was happy with, as I said, the overall tone and direction of the screenplay. Play. I think that the voiceover was a little unfortunate because it was so reminiscent in a weird way. It's sort of like the snake eating, eating its own tail of Rorschach in the Watchmen movies, but Rorschach was himself kind of a riff on Batman. So, you know, it's it's almost kind of an unfair criticism because I can't really say too much about Batman. It reminded me of a character that was already based on that character, but just the tone of the voiceover at the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is kind of like Watchmen. Um, not really a criticism, just something interesting I noted as I was watching the movie. And when we talk about the overlying story of the movie, I really liked the stuff about the Gotham underworld, the Riddler, and Batman's role in all of that. And I'm kind of torn on some other stuff because I like the idea of Batman coming to grips with his father's legacy and the family legacy, the Wayne legacy, and the idea of somebody that you've held up as bulletproof your entire life, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, turning out to be somebody that wasn't the person that you thought they were. But at the same time, I thought we at times were leaning a little bit too close to Amazing Spider-Man territory where the dad is connected to all of the major villains, uh, which wasn't uh, uh, something that I particularly loved from that iteration of the Spider-Man story. But overall, I do think that the stuff about crime in Gotham, the Riddler and Batman and this face-off that they're doing and talking about the hypocrisy of the Waynes, that generally worked for me. But there was some stuff that didn't work, or maybe it wasn't so much that they didn't work, but that I found unnecessary. And, and I did really, really like the movie, but I will openly acknowledge that it's 20 to 30 minutes too long. And it's not an easy cut when I look at the movie because everything is so intertwined with each other. I do think one thing that could have gone is the Selena Kyle Carmine Falcone connection. First of all, I, I think it's kind of a cliche thing of, you know, he's my father. It, it's just been done so many different times. But if they take it somewhere sort of interesting, then I think I could forgive the conceit. But I don't really think that that dynamic, at least in this movie, added a whole lot to the overall plot of the movie the whole side thing with Selena going up and she's going to kill him, etc. Ultimately, I think he was still killed by the Riddler, Falcone was, and that was where you really needed to get that character, and I think you could have done that without establishing that connection. Now, maybe you're going to explore that in future films. I do think that, uh, you know, Zoe Kravitz is really good in that role, but I think that so much of Selena's story was wrapped up in stuff that I didn't feel was necessary to tell this story, the underlying story of this this movie. Uh, maybe they'll pay it off in later films, but you know, viewing this movie, The Batman in a vacuum, that was something that I think didn't really hit as hard for me and could have gone. I also think when we talk about the Riddler, the idea of the Riddler being caught and then going to Arkham, and then his big plan happening and having Batman fight the faux Riddlers, the not Riddlers, and then going back to him being in, in Arkham. Uh, again, I think that those were great scenes. I liked that interaction between Batman and Riddler where he talks about, you know, Bruce Wayne never really understanding what it's like to be a real orphan because of the family money and stuff. That's a really, really great scene. But, you know, the movie is about 175 minutes. I think you could have done it in 150, and I think maybe you could could 
get rid of one of these beats because especially once you capture the Riddler, it kind of feels like the movie ends and then just sort of keeps going uh, as opposed to sort of coasting into this finale where maybe the Riddler is there at the end in the arena. And, you know, maybe you, you somehow combine these two Arkham scenes so that he's not captured and caught and then you go back. It's not an easy prescription for me to say, oh, this is definitely what I would cut. It would be all of this or all of that. But I, I think that there's an extra beat there when it comes to Riddler as well. Generally, though, and kind of shifting over to the villains of the movie, I thought that Paul Dano was really, really, really disturbing as Riddler, um, especially before he was caught when he's doing all of the social media stuff. It reminded me of the most disturbing stuff from Heath Ledger's Joker for me, which was the stuff that he himself shot, the the kind of camcorder stuff that they played on the news. But all of the stuff with Riddler using social media, which of course he would do that. But the fact that he was so lethal and uncaring and uh, just sociopathic, everything about that was so legitimately disturbing. And I like that you take a character who's been played so goofy in the past. I mean, we're talking you know, Frank Gorshin, Jim Carrey levels of goofy, and you're able to keep him true to the roots and the spirit of his character, but at the same time make him feel legitimately threatening and, uh, you know, darker than Batman in a weird way and worthy of Batman, which I think is a very important thing as well. That was some great stuff from Paul Dano. I do feel like once he's unmasked and he's in Arkham, Paul Dano has a very specific acting style when he's just himself. Um, and it works for some people, and it doesn't work for some people. Um, it works for me like 60-40. 60% of the time it works, 40% of the time it doesn't work, and I was kind of on that line when he was really going over the top uh, in that interrogation room scene with Batman uh, when he's already in Arkham, but there's so many other scenes that like really worked for me, like I was so keyed in on, and I think it's just, you know, there's certain specific notes that he himself hits, but he's got that, that thing that some actors have where like he just can play off so well uh, this sort of vaguely subtly threatening thing and you know the stuff that worked for me really outnumbered the stuff that didn't work for me and I think that the Riddler was ultimately a really strong villain and I'm glad that they didn't really kill any of the main villains they're all around for future films and I hope that there will be future films because I want to see where the story goes and there's one in particular that I want to talk about it's the villain that the Riddler meets at the end of the movie and he's played by and I had to look this up because I think everyone's going to be saying this name a lot in the next few years Barry Keown and I've never known how to say his name I had to look up I finally found a, a radio interview. Barry Keown, who is apparently our next Joker, which I'm glad that they were able to keep that under wraps. Um, you know, the Joker has been done so many times, and, you know, I do wish that they may maybe could have staked more of a claim in the franchise before you bring Joker back in, it seems like, for the second movie. But Barry Keown, if, if you don't know his work, you probably do. You've probably seen him in movies like uh, The Green Knight or Dunkirk. But if, you, if, you, if you're not really sure how he's going to be as the Joker. Watch The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is a movie by Yorgos Lanthimos. It is a weird movie. Colin Farrell also in that movie, although he is recognizable in that movie and not so much in this one, which we'll talk about. But he plays such a sinister character. And just this, just the look in his eyes, it is so dark and creepy and disturbing um, that I'm sold on this casting, even if I'm a little suspicious about bringing, bringing the Joker in already. I think this is a potential to be great casting because I think he's an unconventional choice. I think he's a really strong actor, and I've seen him do really subtle disturbing work 
in the past. Barry Keown is a really, really unique talent, and I'm looking forward to what he's going to bring to a well-trodden role. This brings us around to Colin Farrell's Penguin, and there's a lot of entertainment news that comes around uh, every day, every week, every month, and I'd said in my non-spoiler review that I was really looking forward to seeing more of the Penguin in future films, and so many people, like, Dozens of people were like, don't you know he has a show coming up on HBO Max? I honestly, if I'd heard that, it, I did not remember that in the moment just because there's so many different spinoff shows and franchise shows, etc. that I did not in that moment remember that there was a Penguin show coming to HBO Max. I still love this character. I hope he's not constrained just to that show, mainly because I don't know how much you can really lock down Colin Farrell for a multi-season TV show or even however many episodes. I know he's done TV in the past, but that's been more of a limited run thing but also because I want to see him interact with Batman and the other characters that we met, and I don't really know how much you're going to get Robert Pattinson for an HBO Max show or really any of the other major players. I know that there's been talk about other spinoffs, etc., but I want to see this Penguin also cinematically and in these bigger stories because Colin Farrell was so good. I mean, there was absolutely nothing about that performance, not the look, not the voice, nothing to me that said Colin Farrell. If you told me that this was all a big prank and that Colin Farrell wasn't even in the movie and that was somebody else, I would 100% believe you because he disappeared into that role and that scene where Gordon and Batman capture him and he is so far ahead of them. I mean, he is just light years ahead of them. It's like your worst nightmare if you're a cop or if you're a vigilante like Batman where you're going after the bad guy and you've had this big car chase and, you know, running people off the roads, etc. And you're wrong. And you actually did get the wrong guy. And even though this guy's dirty, he's not dirty for the thing that you're after him for. And just the ridicule and talking about speaking Spanish, etc., he, he, it was just such a great dynamic, and I like this. Again, it's sort of like with the Riddler. Make a villain worthy of Batman. When you have these small ball villains, meaning very grounded, but they're able to match wits with Batman and pose a real threat, they've set themselves up so well. I hope they continue this track in the movies as well as whatever shows they decide to go with on HBO Max. Let's talk a little bit about Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. I think that Zoe Kravitz was great. And I think that she had really good chemistry with Robert Pattinson. And the Catwoman-Batman relationship reminded me a lot of what we've seen, yes, in the comic books, also in the animated series, where they're really not that far apart ideologically. It's just that Catwoman is on this side of the law and Batman is on this side of the law. And they have a very hard line that neither of them is going to cross. And that's what keeps them apart. But I think those two actors had great chemistry together. Uh, and again, it does seem sort of like set up for future movies, which is why uh, my issues with the Catwoman storyline in this movie don't really have anything at all to do with Zoe Kravitz, just more like how it was written and fit into an already big movie. I think the big thing going forward is, and something that was a mistake that they made in the movie, Catwoman doesn't need to have an extra role in the mythology or an extra role in uh, her relationship with Gotham City or with Batman. I think that you can just have these two, I love when they do team up and they are legitimately allies up until a certain point. And it's such a direct connection between characters uh, and so adaptable to different situations that I really don't hope they dwell on this whole Falcone's daughter thing and really bring it back to just that pure connection between Batman and Catwoman because it's a very simple dynamic even though it's complicated on a character level and that's where I want to see them continue to pursue this. Don't entangle Catwoman and all this other stuff in Gotham City. 
it's she has plenty of entanglement with Batman to deal with, and I think that there's a lot of room for drama there. And I guess we should talk about Batman, considering that that's the title of the film, The Batman. I was in favor of this casting with Robert Pattinson. I was certainly curious about it, but I've really loved his post Twilight work, uh, things like Good Time, which I think is an incredible movie, and he's even been great in movies like uh, The Lost City of Z, which was, uh, you know, kind of a dark adventure through the jungle. I really think that he's been selecting very interesting roles to take uh, after he kind of bought himself a lot of cultural and financial, let's be honest, uh, freedom uh, with these Twilight films. One of the things that I like the most about this, and I think that makes his performance so unique, is... I mean, I I don't even need to bring out my stopwatch. I think by screen time, this is probably maybe even twice as much Batman as we've ever gotten in any movie and, and I don't and, and I mean literally Batman in costume I like the fact that he's Batman for 90% of the film because again I think that this is putting a stake into this approach and it's saying Bruce Wayne is secondary and I think it ties in to the storyline here I think for Bruce Wayne himself and, and this is what the movie says everything else is secondary to him being Batman Wayne Enterprises Alfred any sort of semblance of an actual life is secondary to him being Batman and I think even things like very subtle things like like the fact that he doesn't take the eye makeup off after he takes off his cowl. Um, and he even has the eye makeup on, you know, when he's roaming the streets. When he has to take the cowl off, he still has some semblance of his identity as Batman. And that, to me, says that this is a character who only fully becomes Bruce Wayne when he has to. In the light of day, which he tries to avoid as much as he can. And I know that there's been jokes about the emo thing and the circles around the eyes. But to me, that is a really smart choice. And I don't know if that was a Matt Reeves choice or if that was a Robert Pattinson choice. Whosever choice that it was, I think that that was a really smart choice because it's a very subtle way to indicate where this character is psychologically. The Batman suit looked great. I wasn't really sure what to think based on what we saw in a lot of the trailers, but it was very much the Arkham Games suit, and I'm a big fan of the Batman Arkham Games, but it was fitted to Robert Pattinson's form. He didn't transform into, you know, uh, a bodybuilder when he put the suit on. It actually seemed like a very high-tech Batman suit uh, that somebody of Robert Pattinson's frame could wear you know he doesn't need to be a brick wall to be Batman and that's another thing I've seen some people disagree on this I like that it was a bulletproof suit and I like the physical approach that they took when choreographing the Batman action because we've had the Batman that hides in the shadows and you know swoops down and picks people up Uh, and that's very fun and it's very mysterious but I like the fact that this Batman is a little more realistic in the sense that he's very well aware that thieves have guns and they're not going to forget how to shoot them uh, when they see Batman Man. And so the idea that he has a suit that will deflect bullets and it's almost more intimidating if you unload on this guy and he doesn't fall down. I like that. I know some people thought that he looked kind of dumb just walking into gunfire. I think that that's even more intimidating because if you're a crook at that point, if that doesn't stop him, well, then nothing's going to stop him. And that adds to the Batman mythology, that sort of immortal mythology. And the first 15, 20 minutes of this movie, that is maybe my favorite Batman stuff that's ever been put on film because you have this idea that Batman exists and he's been around for a couple years, and the idea that the bat signal is there 
not just as a way to get Batman to come, you know, meet Commissioner Gordon on the roof, but the idea that criminals look up at that bat, bat signal and then those shots where they're looking into the shadows and that is so Batman and that's exactly what that character wants and it's exactly what he wants to go for is the idea of striking fear into the hearts of criminals. It's always been his major motivation. He is the knight. So when you look into the darkness, it's a, it's a deterrent because Batman could be there. And if you're robbing somebody or you're doing graffiti or whatever, one of these days when you look into those shadows, Batman is going to walk out of it. And that's the fear and the terror that he's wanted to inspire. And that was maybe the best depiction of that that I have seen in any Batman movie, just so succinct and just the way it was written, the way that they that they photographed it and, and you know, the fact that he doesn't show up at all of these scenes, but you do see just the psychological effect that he's having on Gotham. Uh, I, I just so loved that opening sequence. It hooked me in right from the beginning. And, and I'm a huge Batman fan. I mean, Batman 89 is a keystone movie for me. He has been my favorite superhero ever since then. And, and if you've seen the channel, you know that I've watched a lot of Batman movies lately. That is, like I said, the best or some of the best Batman stuff that's ever been put to film. And it was just such a great way to establish this character and and what this movie was going to be right up front. And it contributes to something else that I want to talk about, which is the feel of the movie, just the overall technical aesthetic of the movie. And a lot of that is the cinematography. And it's no surprise that there was a very talented director of photography on this film. His name is Greg Fraser. He is currently Oscar nominated for working with Denis Villeneuve on Dune. He has done great cinematography for movies like Lion and Rogue One, Zero Dark Thirty. He did the first couple episodes of The Mandalorian. One of the best directors of photography working today. The way that he shot so many of the scenes at either sunset or sunrise. It's such a great collaboration between screenwriting, between the directing, between the cinematography to give this movie an overall feel that also makes sense on a character level. Of course, a big part of the movie, also the score from Michael Giacchino, simple yet effective. And when you look at his career, he has written scores, you would almost say definitive modern scores for Star Trek, Star Wars, the greatest Pixar scores, Mission Impossible, Planet of the Apes, the Jurassic movies, several MCU films, and now Batman. Now this may be a controversial statement, and I'm not saying that he's up there as far as talent, because I think that John Williams is a once in one or two centuries talent. But I do think that Michael Giacchino is kind of inheriting that John Williams role as far as writing uh, memorable, really strong scores for big box office blockbuster films. Most of Michael Giacchino's scores are incredibly distinctive and they are really helping to set the tone and weave the movie ma magic for so many of this generation's blockbusters. And this was another one, uh, perhaps he took this lesson from John Williams, a lesson in just how effective simplicity can be. I mean, you know, the Batman theme, uh, I would say in this movie, kind of equivalent to the Jaws theme, which is you don't have that many notes, but it's where it's used and the arrangement around it that worked so well. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a theme that's been in my head, and it's certainly less, I guess, what you would call or orchestrally complicated than Danny Elfman's Batman theme, but I think just as good and just as effective because, again, it worked in conjunction with the feel and tone of the movie. And all of this spills over to so many of the different elements, the production 
production design, which I thought was great, making Gotham sort of this blend of every major metropolitan city in the United States. I think that that means that you're not saying like, oh, that looks like X person's version of Gotham. It just looked like this kind of mush of an urban area that everybody can see parts of. The fight choreography, again, I talked about the fact that Batman is effectively kind of like a tank in this film. I also like just how brutally effective his fight uh, moves were and, and so fast. I mean, again, you see this idea of just like, yes, he is going to walk straight into a fight, but he's also going to end that fight in five seconds. The costume design, again, for both Batman and the villains uh, worked for each one of those people individually. I mean, I think this is really a great example of how so many different departments can come together and make just a collaborative vision for a film overseen by a director who obviously had a very unique take on this franchise in a way that he wanted to go, an actor in Robert Pattinson who I think brought exactly the right tone and the right nature. It did not evoke any other Batman film. It was singularly this Batman in this universe, and it's a universe that I want to see a lot more of because it didn't promise me more of the same in the next movie. It promised me something different, a different take on this character, an advancement of this character, which to me says that they really want to tell a story with this Batman. However they decide to do it, something that I criticize a lot of modern films for and a lot of modern sagas, and I think that honestly the MCU has made a turn into this post-Endgame, is this lack of consistency when it comes to the creative vision of the movie or TV show or franchise or whatever you want to call it. Not every Batman iteration of the Batman franchise needs to go on until it just peters out, either creatively or box office-wise, uh, and requires a reboot. Let's get a really solid arc, a really solid storyline, whether you keep adapting things. I know that things like the Court of Owls have been thrown around because you're already talking about the elite of Gotham, the underworld, the power structure, etc. Or if you're going to kind of spin it into a new thing and you say, oh, well, you know, I want to take the Joker this direction or I want to take Catwoman this direction. Play in the sandbox a little bit, but also have an endpoint because I think that if they can do that, and it's kind of how I felt about Dune when it came out uh, last year. If you can stick the landing here and give us two or three more Batman stories uh, that really resonate and just feel consistent and, and, and have an arc that makes you feel like, okay, each one of these movies was its own separate and yet important piece of this chapter. I think we could be talking about something really special here, but this is just one movie, so I'm going to reserve judgment. I think it's a really, really solid start, though, for this newest Batman franchise. Finally, something that a lot of people asked me because I did watch all of the feature-length Batman films um, and ranked them here on the channel, you can find that video elsewhere, is where would I put this on my overall list? And I have to say, first of all, I've only seen it one time, so I reserve the right to adjust this up or down uh, based on repeat viewings, how it sits with me, etc. This is based off of just the first blush, so I would say that right now I would put it uh, at about number five on my list. So if you were looking at my overall list, number one was The Dark Knight, number two was Batman Begins, number three was Batman 89, Mask of the Phantasm was number four. I would put this movie at number five, which would knock uh, The Long Halloween, the two-part animated uh, movie, out of the top five. But I will say... One of the great things about movies is you see something uh, on uh, you know your first time and you see it again and you either say, oh my God, there's so many things I didn't notice. Uh, it, it's even better than I thought. Or you say, well, you know what? This part was kind of boosted. I, I really did love that Batmobile chase and the sound was great, 
But you know, that kind of, I, I didn't think about this and it kind of drops in estimation. And that's another thing I think that's important to think about as we all watch these movies and make our own opinions. Movies are fluid and you see them at different times and your opinions can change and you can see all sorts of different things in them that you didn't think that you could see. You should never be married to an opinion on a movie just because that's what you thought of it the very first time you saw it. Leave yourself open to interpretation to adjust how much you liked or didn't like a movie because that's one of the great things about the movies. You can see a movie that you didn't like and see it again five years later and go, you know what? I actually really like that movie. That's what keeps me coming back. What about you? Are you coming back to this Batman franchise? Let me know down in the comments below. And before we go, I want to thank the sponsor for this review, which is Stamps.com. One of the things that I like to do, especially when I was able to do conventions and stuff, and I hope to go back there again, is to support small businesses. And when people think small business, a lot of them think, you know, like a mom and pop hardware store. But a small business can be anything. It can be a comic book store. It can be a YouTube channel. Stamps.com has been helping small businesses save thousands of hours and tons of money by providing all of the services of the United States Postal Service and UPS all in one convenient place. Not only can you get all of the services of UPS and the USPS in one place, but you can also get great discounts, including up to 40% off of USPS and up to 62% off of UPS service. All you have to do is use your computer to print official US postage for any letter, any package, any class, anywhere that you want to send it, and Stamps.com has you covered. It's no wonder that nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. So stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with my promo code MERL, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Merle. That's Merle, M-U-R-R-E-L-L, stamps.com, promo code Merle. Never go to the post office again. Thanks so much to Stamps.com for sponsoring this video, and thank you for watching. I'll be back tomorrow with a couple of new videos for you. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.